Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th President of the United States gets down to work on January 21st, 2017, the new Commander-in-Chief will face life-or-death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017, challenges and choices. If Russia has Iran's back, and Iran knows Russia has its back, and America has pivoted to Asia or pivoted back to Peoria, there's no stopping the Iranians. Today, we'll hear from Ambassador James Jeffrey, Solon's distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute and former United States ambassador to Iraq and Turkey. His most recent publication, co-authored with Michael Eisenstadt, is U.S. Military Engagement in the Broader Middle East, a comprehensive study of American involvement in the region since World War II. After this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. The morning of January 21st, 2017, after the festivities of the inauguration are over, the 45th president of the United States is going to get down to work. And uh, when it comes to the Middle East, what do you think are the one or two most important questions or decisions that the new president is going to have to make that are going to set the stage and frame the next four years of American policy in the Middle East? Here's how that conversation should go, Scott. Mr. President, it's time to get real. Before we can decide on any specific policy in the Middle East or anywhere, we have to make a fundamental reassessment. Do we continue with our basic foreign policy since World War II of running a global security system of like-minded countries with financial, monetary, economic values, and most importantly, security components? Do we become much more a traditional realpolitik state pursuing only our interests without concern about others or greater values? Or do we fold down upon ourselves and become isolationist? On the assumption that we will choose the first of those three and continue broadly our foreign policy over the past 70 years, which has enriched us and much of the world, kept the world peaceful in a globe full of nuclear weapons, then the Middle East will have to get priority attention. The first question there is, what is the threat or threats and what should we do about it? The threat begins with Islamic fundamentalist challenges to the state structure and the global and regional order, emanating mainly from Sunni radical extremists and the Islamic Republic of Iran with its Shia version of the same kind of philosophy. How are we going to respond to that, be it with ISIS and its remnants in Syria and Iraq, be it with Iran throughout the region, be it with terror that stretches from North Africa to Pakistan? 
In your recent report, you talked about that as being kind of the core of a of, of American grand strategy since World War II, the expansion and preservation of uh, an international state system with a liberal uh, order. Should that still be the core of United States grand <laughs> strategy? And in particular in the Middle East, has that even a realistic goal for us anymore with the breakdown of states that's in progress and is seemingly accelerating across the region? A, it should be our basic goal because this is a tried and proven system. Uh, despite a few missteps, Vietnam, arguably Iraq, uh, we have managed to pursue this uh, without great cost to the American people and our economy. And as I just said, it is extraordinarily beneficial to us in the middle of an age where in hours uh, we can destroy civilization. And it's advantageous to the rest of the world, too. And we should have a moral obligation to the extent we can to be a good friend of everyone. The question is, can the Middle East be saved from itself? I just returned from a Washington Institute trip to the region with Dennis Ross and leading uh, political thinkers from both the Republican and Democratic parties. And the word from the leaders of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Netanyahu in Israel, and I've spoken to the other leaders as well, is they believe they can survive. They're worrying about the weaker states, but they believe that with America's commitment, America returning to its traditional policies up till 2003, that uh, the United States can make the difference, not just with their fates, but with the fates of the other states that are holding their own under very difficult conditions against the twin onslaughts of Islamic radical terrorism and uh, Iran. So do you think that with, uh, with, with wise U.S. strategy and essentially military and diplomatic tactics matched to that strategy, that the Middle East is a place where we can actually advance U.S. interests, or is this, or is the Middle East going to remain a place where it's mainly a question of managing problems to achieve least bad outcomes? The way the system has worked since World War II is a combination of both, Scott. That is, we managed the problems in East Asia in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in order to eventually see that management turn into the actual gestation of a value system that, with the exception of China and North Korea, is pretty self-sustaining, even more in Central and South America. 20 to 30 years ago, that was a battleground. Now, with the exception of a few outlier states, Cuba, Venezuela, the region is democratic, it's relatively prosperous, and most importantly, unlike in the 1980s, it's at peace because you manage the problem until the basic generators of violence and generators of destabilization fade away, and they do fade away. So that's the game plan also for the Middle East. Right now, we're in the management stage, and the most important thing is to first have a few basic values. The importance still of the nation state, don't quibble with borders, don't focus on tribes and groups and ethnic identities, focus on nation states, focus on international law. Secondly, stand by our friends. Not one of them in the region perhaps would want to be invited to your favorite cocktail party or your best sibling's uh, birthday, but all of them are our allies, and that's what we have in a collective security system is allies. Thirdly, B2, 
be willing to use military force. That's the argument against Barack Obama and his policy of avoiding it under almost all costs other than attacking terrorists. But second, don't commit large numbers of ground troops for anything other than a liberation of Kuwait-like pure military mission. That's the mistake that President Bush made. Both were trying their very best to manage and to move the region forward. Both ran into great difficulties. Bush in Iraq Obama, by acting, Obama in Syria by not acting, uh, because they've deviated from these basic principles. The principles are okay. It's the deviation from them over the past 15 years that has caused such problems. In, in your study, you uh, charted, uh, you, you cataloged, basically all U.S. Uh, military engagements at any level in the Middle East from World War II, 1946 to the present. And and you when you categorize them into different types of engagement, when you looked at limited military engagements, the success rate there was nearly perfect. And and looking at then at the two extremes of the, the Bush administration, uh, Russia and Iraq in 2003 versus the reticence to use even limited force today, you write, it's urgent as well as important to examine what the military can and cannot do based on our experiences in the region. If you had the ear of the president in, in uh, January 2017, uh, the, the 45th president, what would you want them to know about what the military can and cannot do as they look to uh, how they're going to turn strategy into policy? That's a crucial question. Our economic, financial, trade, monetary policies with the energy policies with the Middle East and with the entire globe are very, very important, Scott. They undergird everything we do, but they're basically difficult to move. They're sunk costs. They're not something that we can address. Whereas security, and that comes down in the end to using or being willing to threaten the use of military force is the key variable. And that's very hard, especially hard for a democracy. It's easy for Putin to put his airplanes into Syria. It's hard for Barack Obama or George Bush to do so. So the basic principles are, because you cannot avoid this, is first of all, any military action, which goes beyond shooting to deployments, to threats of deployment, must be embedded in a political strategy. B, any actual military operation must have a military goal, as understood by traditional military thinkers and our military advisors to the president. It has to involve defeating enemy forces, taking and holding territory. It cannot be an amorphous mission of sending messages trying to reform or transform societies or create, quote, conditions for some sort of civilian renewal of governance, of understanding and reconciliation and of economic growth. The military can't do those missions. Thirdly, our political goals inside our within which our military must ride, have to be limited in nature. Even at the political level, we're not going to change the region. We've been most successful, be it Korea in 1951, 52, after we gave up the idea of liberating North Korea and holding off the Chinese and the North Koreans from South Korea. In Europe, defending Berlin, defending Greece, defending our other NATO countries, and in Kuwait, restoring the status quo ante. 
these limited missions because they are clear. The American people understand them, the reasons for them, and the international community overwhelmingly supports them actually can be done. All of these other things from the march into North Korea in 1950 to our latest examples are simply fantasies. You, you mentioned how much uh, easier it is for an autocrat like uh, Vladimir Putin to deploy force uh, and, and to invent new missions uh, than it is for the leaders of a democratic polity. That raises the question for me of, of Russia. Looking at what's new in the Middle East in the last 15 years, I, it seems like the breakdown of the state system and Russian involvement. Russia has not been a, a military presence in the Middle East for two generations now, and now it is. Do you feel like the Russian intervention in the Middle East right now, does that represent a larger strategic threat to U.S. interests globally, or is that merely a tactical or, <laughs> or regional challenge to our regional interests and strategy? Uh, it is all of the above, Scott. And it is an interesting phenomenon because we're dealing with, again, a Middle East where a state structure an effort to enter modernity, an effort to become like the rest of the world that we've been managing for decades, has come under assault by these uh, forces of disillusion and violence, primarily Islamic terror on the Sunni side and an Islamic theological state on the Shia side in Iran. Russia, meanwhile, along with China, has developed over the past 15 years into peer competitors of the United States, whose basic goal is to either overthrow the global order or at least carve out areas where it is a no-go zone for the United States, our military, and that global order, and where the war of the jungle, the power of the most powerful prevails, China and Russia, be it Ukraine, be it the South China Sea. What is happening in the Middle East is not Putin's effort to try to do a second Crimea in Syria or Iraq. He knows he doesn't have the power for that. But given what I said the situation was in the Middle East, that region's participation in the American order coming under stress and challenge by these Islamic movements, and I include Iran in the category Islamic movement, he saw the opportunity to jump on board to wallow in this chaos, most importantly in Syria, on the side of one of the challenges to the American-led global order, Iran, in order to undercut us and to show that in the future, also in the Middle East, there will be no solution to any problem without Vladimir Putin. And by gosh, he's going to demand a big price for that. Typically, a withdrawal of American influence and power to some degree are a sharing of it with Putin. But you cannot share a global order based on international law and the UN Charter with a guy who believes in the law of the jungle. That's the contradiction at the core of both his intervention in the region and the efforts by Secretary Kerry to come to a compromise with Putin on Syria. So the, the Russian state uh, frequently describes its intervention in Syria as intending to shore up a an existing regime and uh, hold in place and maybe restore a pre-existing state that can be part of the stable state system. Is that something the Russians are telling themselves, telling us? Is that is there any validity even in their own minds to that that frame of Russian involvement in Syria? Their primary motivation, again, is to undercut the global security system to the extent at the same time they can uh, accomplish two other goals. One is 
uh, to suppress Sunni Islamic extremism because they see that as a bigger threat to their country and to neighboring areas in Central Asia and the Caucasus, which are primarily Sunni Islam other than um, Azerbaijan, they will do so. And secondly, to the extent that they can wrap themselves in a threadbare argument about supporting international law because the Syrian state is a legitimate state, they will do so. But the Syrian state is not a legitimate state any more than Gaddafi's Libya was a legitimate state or Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a legitimate state. These were states who were waging war on their own populations. They were fueling the rise of extremism. They weren't a bulwark against it. They were fueling it. And they were destined to become, if they weren't already, failed states and generators of instability. So they're not anything worth fighting to save. In 1980, the uh, the Carter Doctrine declared that any outside force attempt to gain control in the Persian Gulf will be regarded as a vital as an assault on the vital interests of the United States, will be repelled by any means necessary. Should the Carter Doctrine still apply as relates to the Persian Gulf? The Carter Doctrine should apply as relates to the Persian Gulf, and more generally, because uh, as we saw, we didn't have a Carter Doctrine before 1975, 1976, 1977, 1978, because we had no way to get there, Scott. It was only our engagement, including military engagement with the arms supply to Israel and the global alert against the Soviet effort to intervene in the Yom Kippur War, that developed the relationships, most importantly with Egypt, but also with Israel, and the conviction in the Gulf that we would not oppose them dramatically on either the oil account or on the Palestinian-Israeli-Arab uh, dispute that led to us gaining access through Egypt and through the uh, Saudi Arabia, through that territory to the Gulf. So when we say it's a doctrine for the Gulf, it's also a doctrine for those march lands up to the Gulf as well. That security has to begin in Egypt extend through the Levant, and then to the Arabian Peninsula and to the Gulf. Only then can we protect that vital oil uh, lifeline. Does the Russian presence currently in uh, Syria and tactically to at least a limited ex experimental extent in Iran put pressure against the Carter Doctrine as, uh, uh, as a, a, a believable element of U.S. policy? In one sense, yes. In one sense, no. Militarily, Russia does not have the capability to project massive power into the region, certainly not comparable to us. That's different from 30 years ago, where a Russian invasion of Iran would be, have been very hard to stop before the Gulf. But by intervening like this and raising the question, will America react, it has called into question the willingness of administrations to go to the defense of that doctrine. Secondly, while the Russian military presence is relatively limited, it can be decisive in two ways. First of all, we're seeing how air power can be decisive um, in the civil war in Syria. But more importantly, if Russia has Iran's back and Iran knows Russia has its back and America has pivoted to Asia or pivoted back to Peoria, there's no stopping the Iranians. The combined Arab states, Turkey, 
and Israel are more than strong enough to deal with Iran. And Iran, fueled by Russian support, is unstoppable without an active, prepared to take risks United States. My assessment is we do not have that today in the region. And that's what I heard from all of the leaders when I was out there. From administration to administration, dating back basically to the the hostage crisis uh, shortly after the 1979 revolution, your study paints a picture of an Iran that seems to believe that it gets the better of the United States most of the time by exploiting its willingness to escalate beyond our desire to bear costs. How can the next administration change that dynamic with regard to Iran in the region? The first thing to do is to read about the one exception to that history you described, which is the Tanka War from 1986 to 1988. Then, for a variety of reasons, the United States, despite the fact uh, we essentially lost two major surface combatants, one to an Iraqi attack inadvertent, one to an Iranian mine, we kept upping the ante. We went toe-to-toe with them until they ran out of ships and they ran out of revolutionary guards brave enough to take us on, knowing that that would be almost certain death. That's how you deal with these guys. Are you, you don't have to do it every day, but you better be ready to do it every day because the day you're not ready to do it, they'll smell it and they'll go for the jugular. And that was, from the American point of view, a relatively limited engagement. Um, th- that was not something that, other than a couple of weeks, a couple of times, was even a an item in headline news at the time. Um, and yet it was a, a relatively full commitment of force. It was a fifth fleet. It was Air Force units. It was a very uh, sophisticated, tailored U.S. Army uh, contribution with uh, what we call Little Bird attack helicopters, special forces, Marines, because aside from the forces that are actually taking on the Iranians, you needed additional forces to be ready to repel any attacks. And the Iranians tried it. At one point, they were uh, had launched a massive small boat attack on Saudi Arabia. Uh, the attack was called off at the last minute. I don't know whether it was weather or bad coordination, but it's that degree of danger that you will face with these guys. It won't be easy. But again, the number of American casualties due to enemy fire, killed due to enemy fire in that engagement, zero. We lost a couple of people in a helicopter crash. We had some injured on uh, the ships that were uh, hit by the Iranians, and we did lose people on the ship that was hit by uh, uh, the Iraqis, uh, but I don't count that as a uh, casualty of the fight with Iran. So you can do this below the radar with low casualties. Uh, and some commitment of forces. But there was no doubt in the Iranians' mind that whatever level of force it took to defeat them, Ronald Reagan would deploy to the region. Uh, You need that belief on the part of your enemies to be able to take it on. And frankly, we see some of this. When the administration talks about, oh, Russia controls half of the airspace in the Middle East with a few rockets in uh, uh, Syria, and on and on and on about how this limits us. No, at very best, it's because we assume that Putin would up the ante, and he would. But he would find out very quickly his military options are limited. I'm not advocating a military confrontation with Putin. I'm uh, I'm arguing for us to be on the ground to deal with these areas of instability, beginning with Iran and continuing with ISIS and other Islamic extremist groups in the region. Russia will learn to get out of the way. 
you you've actually uh, been in the room uh, briefing and and present when decisions are made at the highest levels in multiple administrations. Tell me what it's like to be in the room with the principals, with the president, when briefings are given, when decisions are being made. Many of the people listening to our discussion, Scott, have been involved at high level discussions at almost any organization. We could talk about the church fathers and the pastor discussing an issue like building a new church or General Motors looking at a new line of cars. It's not all that different. The difference in discussions, and people would be amused to listen to these Oval Office discussions because they're conducted with a very impressive degree of informality, equality among all of the talkers, including uh, the president accepting criticism and being pushed back by the most junior advisors, because that's how the American government works at the highest levels. It's how any organization that is effective works at the highest levels. And most people have been around organizations, however local, that work at the highest levels. At that level, and, and I've thought a lot about this, I have a master's in uh, business administration, so I, it's somewhat of a um, fetish of mine to look at how decisions are made at that level. At any organization at the top, People focus on the basics that will keep the organization healthy, expanding, and generating the necessary support, typically income, but also in the case of political organ organisms, uh, popular support. And the people in charge will talk, will go to the bottom line. There's not a lot of political correctness. There's not a lot of uh, uh, smoke and mirrors. There's not the sort of bureaucratic I stay in my lane, you stay in your lane, that you would get at the mid-levels of any organization. That's not a critique of mid-levels and the people in them because I spent most of my life in them. But I know the difference. At the top level, it is a very productive, creative back and forth where people are being judged not only by the facts they have, but by their record of being right in the past and the conviction that they may have that their course of action is the right one. If they're uncertain, the president and the others in the room will sense that, and that's an unlikely course for people to uh, agree on. If people are absolutely sure of something, they're likely to win. That, of course, is dangerous if you don't combine that with judgment and experience on the part of the president, and if the person whose conviction is so strong does not have a long history of successful decision-making. So those are the ways that people uh, decide. Thank you for speaking with me today. Ambassador James Jeffrey is the Philip Solon's Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and the former United States Ambassador to Iraq and to Turkey. He recently co-authored with Michael Eisenstadt, U.S. Military Engagement in the Broader Middle East, a comprehensive study published by the Washington Institute of American involvement in the region since World War II. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.